Hi, this is Damian Rogers, the poetry editor at House of Anansi Press, and this is the Anansi Poetry Podcast. I spoke to poet and filmmaker Shane Book shortly after it was announced that his book Congotronic had been nominated for the Griffin Poetry Prize. I'm going to start by reading Flagelliform 19, Snakefoot That Does Not Walk, from that collection. Gathered my owls, my falcons, my archers, my horses and their men, my friends and my axes, my guns, my near north spears, my arrows, my tents and my battle chants, my dogs, at Tabon near Kita City, at Gettysburg, at Tikrit, at Lake Erie, at the Bastille, at the Nile, at Vimy, at Ypres, at Santa Clara, at Moncada, at Las Mercedes, at Tambov, at Petrograd, at La Simon Sanglant, at the Communards Wall in the Père Lachaise Cemetery, in the Rue Rampano in Belleville. We were fewer. We were fever. At Fallujah, at Quezon, at Vicksburg, at Lake Champlain, at Milai, at the Sunni Triangle, we lay all our wonders unavenged. As that sample suggests, Shane's work is rich with a kind of global awareness. And we started part one of this interview with me asking where that started. Um, well, it probably started, yeah, from birth because, um, and not just because I was, I happened to have been born in Lima, but mm -hmm. uh, because my my parents are not, they didn't come from the same country, you know. Right. So they were, um, um, they met in university, at the University of Western Ontario as undergrads. And my mother was there on, I believe it's a, called a Commonwealth Scholarship, which in the Caribbean is and the Commonwealth is a big deal because I think they picked like one or two students back then from the whole country that would win it. And wow. she, um, yeah, so she was a smarty pants, as I like to call her. And uh, <laughs> I've met her. She's definitely she, a smarty pants. <laughs> she she, uh, she claims she just studied for her entire teenage years. Right. <laughs> uh, she, wasn't, she wasn't so social. Or, I mean, she had friends, but she was like a real studious person. So she got this, this thing, and it was important um, because it allowed her to go to university anywhere in the Commonwealth for free. Uh, in like the sixties. And so, um, I think the story is she chose to go to Canada because in her high school in Trinidad in San Fernando, mm -hmm. the, the, the city in Trinidad where she, um, grew up, uh, she had these Canadian nuns and they were teaching and I think they were nice. She said, she was mm -hmm. really like, Oh, they're nice people. And <laughs> I don't think she knew, knew much about Canada because I don't think anyone told her there was winter. Like, it seemed, wow. this is like pre-internet, of course. So she just, I can't imagine, she was probably 18. And she, they, she, I don't think she'd ever, I'm sure she had never been on a plane before. Because there's pictures of black and white photos of her entire, like, extended family, all dressed in their Sunday best clothes, standing at the airport. You know, like, it looks like a, you know, like a class formal or a wedding photograph. And, and my mother's in this nice dress, and she's about to get on an airplane, you know, and it's like, 
it's like, you know, one of those things like, you know, we're never going to see you again sort of feelings. Um, so she came to Canada um, uh, from, a, from a family, I mean, um, of people who really valued reading and, and books and, th- and things, even though um, my grandfather and my grandmother were not formally, they didn't have much formal education. But like, I know my grandfather was like a, a real reader and um, really entrepreneurial guy and he he had aspirations for his for his children and and such so um anyway so she came from there to to london ontario and um i think she said she cried like for a year or something she was so lonely and homesick and she ate a lot of peanut butter and she discovered peanut butter and white bread (laughs) well those are two things that canadian cuisine i think can can be proud of (laughs) And country music. She liked, she, she, she sort of like liked it because it was, I think cause she could understand the words and they were stories kind of like Calypso. Mm-hmm. You know? And so she, she got into country music and, uh, anyway, she lived with, um, the other, you know, the probably like five, five black girls from the West Indies and in the whole university. And she was roommates with a bunch of them. One of whom was Adrian's mother. Uh, I believe they were roommates, but anyway, so, um, she met, met my dad who was from like Northern Ontario and, um, probably hadn't seen a black person, I don't know, till he was like, went to Western, you know? Um, so he had, he had maybe on a holiday to the States or something, he had driven around Chicago as a child, but he, he was very, uh, I think from a really small, he was from a small place. Um, and so that kind of, it's kind of cool. They got together and then the first place they moved, like they, they kind of got married as soon as they graduated, like seemed like the day after, and then went to to Lima as CUSO volunteers, the Canadian University Students Overseas, which is still in existence. It's the it's actually what Peace Corps is is modeled on. It's older than Peace Corps, and it's yeah, the I same. think you were telling me that, or someone yeah. was. That's that's really interesting. So I had that sort of immigrant um, mentality in the family, which is you know striving, working hard that, you know, immigrants come to new, new places with. But also my first sounds I remember are like the sounds of Peruvian music. Cause, um, my parents, pl- they were really into the culture and they, my mom learned to cook the food, the per- Peruvian food. And so I have like immediately, even though we moved to Vancouver, um, shortly after I was born, I don't know the timing, but I wasn't very old. We moved to Vancouver and I just, my first memories are like eating arroz con pollo and listening to like some guy wailing on a guitar, like an Andean folk music. Um, so, it, you know, in Vancouver, in Port Moody, in the rain, you know, it's sort of like this. Wow. So I, I didn't know where I was. Like, I was just like, I remember being like, I don't know. I never, so that was, and then we moved to Ottawa when I was five. And, um, but, you know, and then, so there's also the West Indian influence was always there, of course. So we had just, there's just always two, at least two major cultural groupings in the house Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of family and food, you know, so eating, eating curried, uh, curried food, like West Indian Trinidadian food, and also eating like beef stroganoff, you know, and just kind of, and, and Peruvian. So it's just, and Trinidad itself is, is, I think of it as like, it's one of the first sites of globalization because it's, it was multicultural before anybody knew what that was, you know, it's, because of slavery and because of bringing large numbers of South Asians to work as indentured workers and having a Chinese population, 
one of my grandmothers is um, Chinese, uh, great grandmothers was Chinese, like that, you know, there's, in, we have indigenous blood in our family. So it's, our family's already mixed. And mm -hmm. um, my grandmother spoke a sort of strange version of, it's a patois, but it, it's a, it's a Spanish, it's kind of like a sort of bizarre Spanish that only certain people from Spanish descent speak in Trinidad and they all live in one area, but they, but they're like, they're black too. But it's, so it's, you know, I never knew what the heck was going on in terms of location. And then when we went to, to Ghana, I was, uh, you know, I was at an age where I wasn't in puberty yet, but like friends were really important and I was kind of ripped out of my friend network in Ottawa and um, it was super depressing the first year when I was in Ghana because I didn't, I was disoriented. And I went from being like a middle class, well, I don't even know if you, like, you know, not, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of money. Like my mother made all of our clothes and mm -hmm. she even sewed, sewed my dad's suits, made suits and stuff, <laughs> one suit for him. So we just lived oh, very, Amazing to have very, those kind of skills. <laughs> yeah, basic, basics, basic living, uh, you know. I guess that would have been middle class back then, but uh, but then yeah, you have that kind of you become like a diplomat. Like we became, we were diplomats, you know. So right. um, so we had like people worked in the house, and we had a driver, and we had like it was just disorienting. And there was no, there was no um, the economy in Ghana was had been kind of um, hollowed out by uh, structural readjustment mandated from the World Bank. Um, where they were basically just in the 80s, just making all these countries comply to pay back their loans. Um, and But, you know, it was disguised. It was like sort of neoliberal um, incursions. So they would just make the countries just evacuate all of their social programs and stop spending. And so everything got cut and the economy went into free fall and the money was worthless. And there was like re revolutionary government that was always trying, people were trying to topple it because it was very easy to take over by, you just had to take over the real, the radio station and announce that you had, you had taken over the government. If, I guess if the army agreed with you, they would switch sides. So you had, you had like a lot of instability in Ghana and you had like no, like go, you go into the stores. I mean, there were no stores because there was nothing to sell. You know, there were no restaurants. There was like two hotels. One was owned by the Libyan government. And I think I remember Westerners couldn't stay there because it was, they thought it was tapped. It was bugged. So, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it was Cold War. And like, how aware stuff. of all of these things were you as an adolescent living there? Totally. I was, because I was, uh, I was, I hung out with adults. Like my dad, I don't, he never, uh, they never really, they allowed us to hang out. And I was much more interested in hanging out with like the visiting uh, people. Because also, because there were no hotels and we had this, big house like my parents had an open door policy that anyone who came to town a Canadian or not 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 just a Canadian any visitor to to Accra who needed a place to stay seemed to stay at our house and so I I there were two beds and two twin beds in our my bedroom and I remember I would wake up often there'd be some dude in the next bed and I would like <laughs> not know who he was and then I'd go to have breakfast and we'd start chatting and it turned out he would be like you know like he could be a university student or he could be like the minister of trade from like some country, you know, I mean, yeah. and there are cocktail parties of hundreds of people in our house all the time. I was part of the job. And so there was tons of entertaining cause there was nowhere to go for entertainment. So 
um, we would always be holding these huge dinners and dance. There's tons of dances. And then like a curfew would happen. The curfew would be like sometimes, you know, 10 p.m. Everyone had to be home because the military government was on, on alert. And mm-hmm. so the parties would magically just end. It was just, it was bizarre. And the, there was no petrol. There, we had gas, but even the police, the city police didn't have gas for their cars. So you couldn't, I mean, just to give an example, like we, my friends and I would, we could bribe the driver of, a, of one of my friends. We didn't have a driver. My parents, I don't think they had a driver, but our other friends of mine did. And we could just give them like a cigarette and a one can of beer and they'd let us take the car. You know, these like huge old Mercedes and wow. you'd be like thir- 13 years old and bombing down the highway. Um, you know, and you'd see the police and they would kind of wave at you and you'd wave back because, you know, they can't get in their cars and chase you. So um, it was weird. It was, I got into a lot of trouble. And, uh, but it was, it was good fun. And, but then, you know, I went from that to, um, and, and stuff like the military coups where you would know someone had taken over the government, tried to take over the government because you turn on the one radio station. And that is if there was electricity that day because it was rationed. Um, but And then you would hear marching music for like the whole day. No one would be talking and you'd realize. Then you look outside and there's soldiers on the streets. And of course, usually the, the coup, all, coup attempts always failed eventually. And so there would be firing squads. And and that was common knowledge. And friends of my, of my parents of friends of mine from school were like put in prison because they were opposing this um, regime and um, you know some some of them had to flee and you know some friends fathers like jail in Ghana was no joke because there's no they didn't even feed you know some of these guys so they had to there was just a lot of stress you know and I went back to Canada where the the main topic of conversation and I mentioned this in my high school talks was I was so thoroughly out of it when I came back to Canada like I was first of all I was dressed like I was an Italian or something because. I we would we would go to Milan or to Italy, or someplace you know uh, for holidays. Um, we would often stop off in, in one of these places. And my mom was always into fashion, and um, her dad was one of the singer sewing representatives for the singer sewing machine company in Trinidad. And he had he seemed to sell machines to every person on the island. And he was also an expert, uh, like uh, tailor, etc. So and he taught my mother how to do all that when she was a kid. So, so this she was is where you get into... your tremendous sense of style? It's from your mother. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Just, I love, I always loved clothes. And yeah. so like, you know, like back then we didn't have the internet. So like fashion was two years behind. Like if you went to North America, um, you, you would be appalled if you were from someplace else. Cause you'd be like, why are they still wearing that? And um, I, so I show up, I roll up in like a custom made um, sort of M- MC Hammer uh, camouflage pants with gold zippers that I had made by a tailor. And because you couldn't buy clothes in Ghana, so we would steal the styles from abroad. And then we would, you know, my, my mother would be like, okay, let's just, you know, tell them how to make it or she would make it or whatever. Usually wow, she'd get amazing. the tailor. So, but yes, I, showed, I would imagine I mean, that probably being a mixed race family in Ottawa at that time and then wearing camouflage hammer pants with gold zippers that were beautifully custom made. And I imagine really fantastic fabric too. Uh, yeah, really cool fabric. But then like uh, I was, this shows you how I imagine you thought that you stood out. 
Yeah, and I and I and I all they wanted to like my I was so not into being there that I didn't change the watch time on my watch for like from Ghanaian time for an entire year. I just right. I just kept it at five hours ahead, and so people would, kids would look at my what time is it? And they'd be like, "It's not eight p.m." And I'd have to explain. Well, it is where I am, right? You know, in my in my mind, and so I was like really I hated it, and 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 all they wanted to talk about was um, going to the mall and mm-hmm. uh, you know who's dating whom, and I was like interested in politics and you know everybody. I remember walking into Wolco where I later got a job, but I, I used to get anxiety attacks because I would look and there'd be so many, so much clothing for sale, for example, or there'd just right. be acres of th- choices and it would just be overwhelming. And I think of like places my dad would take me up into villages. He'd take me on these trips when he had to go visit the, the he was, they were building water pumps, water wells, and trying to help um, folks not, not be able to basically to give vill- the people in villages a choice that they could drink clean water from a well versus the river because there are all these preventable diseases that people are getting from the polluted rivers. And so, you know, you see like kids your own age and you think, well, just by the grace of whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, that could be me. You know, it's yeah. just luck that I am not um, suffering from river blindness, for example, right. which is totally, nobody has should have that. But, um, and then you go to Wolco and like kids are just like, all they want to do is shoplift polo shirts and you know eat like i don't know uh, burgers or something it was there was just a paucity of of interaction with the outside world and um, it felt so small um so yeah so it was it was super weird so i always felt like out of place and and it helped me later when by the time i was in my final year of high school because i never i never attached to a group of people i was friends with every group and so but I didn't want to be part of any group. So when I ran for student body president, I guess I was probably like, seemed to be a friend of everyone's. Um, and so that was good. And, and I played like five sports and played in the band, uh, school band. And so I was super active. But I think I was also just like, I didn't, I was trying to be busy. Um, and it's that immigrant thing too, where you just got to be doing stuff and um, probably tried to, they didn't want me to be too too depressed. So my parents were like, yeah, yeah, you should, you know, do stuff. And so, well, it makes a lot of sense to me now hearing you just even describe those things. It seems, uh, very evident too, in the way that you've pursued your poetry career and just the education. I mean, you have so, such a interesting, mix of uh well first of all you have a lot of degrees <laughs> done a lot of <laughs> education but but beyond even just the fact that you have studied with a lot of different people uh, you know and I've mentioned this before something I really recognize and admire in your work um and I see it in your resume is the fact that you do not uh get trapped by by one particular um, sort of aesthetic camp as being um, you know the beginning and end of, of your own artistic territory I mean first of all obviously you don't even work exclusively in literary arts if we're gonna I like the term literary arts we should take it over um, mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. you're a filmmaker as well that you know you're working in you know to related but but generally I mean certainly both both of them in terms of the professional sphere, you know, the film world and the poetry world operate very differently. And 
And then even uh, just thinking about your poetics, I think what was so exciting to me when I discovered your work was that I see this tremendous openness to um, every available tool as opposed to uh, what I what I see too often is that I think poets feel like there's a certain type, they try to figure out what kind of poet they're supposed to be or the types of poets they're supposed to be reading. I mean, we talked about this, how you've... Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to implicate anyone in particular, but I know we've talked about having um, certain teachers that you've worked with um, discourage you away from even reading poets that you were interested in that seemed like they were on the other side of some sort of border that was unsafe to cross. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've never been comfortable with, um, I suppose if one were to be as, try to psych, pop psychologize myself, uh you know, maybe you'd say, oh, it's because you're of of different cultures or different races or something, if you're into, like, some sort of racial determinism, which I am not. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, I think having a, having a sense of being a... I never thought of myself as being kind of wanting to be too closely tied to any, as I said, even in high school, but definitely aesthetic camps. I, um, I, I didn't know this, of course, um, but I just remember, like, my first... My first exposure to poetry, I was I was like totally you know interested in um, what I would call the sort of lyric. I hate this actually. I don't even think this makes sense, but you know the term lyric narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah, I never I really understood what that is supposed to mean. But let's say like the main tree of modernism, um, like from Frost and you know that 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 sort of branch of modern or mm -hmm. not the main tree, but the main branch of modernism. Um, or like American is, modernism. Yeah, like the Frost, you know, going up to Al Purdy kind of, uh, just made a weird jump there, but... Um, no, but I can but follow you know that. I mean. I'm actually seeing a branch, although, you know, <laughs> flowing from a very yeah. large redwood, so... Yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of a injunction that we should, we should write in a sort of plain, plain style. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like the human voice and speaks very carefully and has a certain... Um, it has a lot of values embedded in that choice, but I, uh, I, that was my first exposure and it was awesome. Like I, um, I learned a lot. I learned what I think of, I think of that as a form really. I know that, that that's supposed to be like free verse, um, not frost of course, but like, you know, the, the Philip Levines, the, the Patrick Lanes, um, of that kind of yeah, mode. And these are teachers of um, too that you're naming. Totally, um, super influential. Lorna Crozier, those, those, those three were my first, really, really influential teachers. Um, Don Mackay, uh, I worked a little bit with, and um, I loved, I loved that, and it was important for me. I was also interested in, um, and I don't know why this is, but I just was always interested in what else, you know, what else can we do with poetry? And um, that's probably also because I, I wanted to be a, a saxophone player. Um, and I, well, that I had a teacher. Me at all. Oh, really? Why? Well, cause you, there's so much music in your work and it totally, I mean, we haven't talked about that, but, and I don't just mean musical references, which there are, especially in Congotronic, a lot of very clear musical references, but, uh, your use of sound, it's, it's subtle compared to, you know, there's certain poets who, uh, are using sound in a much, uh, more foregrounded way but I really hear the the 
interplay of music in all of your lines. It's one of the things that really, you know, attracted me to your work in the first place. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I, I, this teacher, uh, was always telling me to play like all of the instrument. He was, he was like, you know, you can't, you can't just play part of it. And, and, um, he was, he, he showed me like, uh, free jazz, a little bit of free jazz and, um, so people like and, Cecil Taylor or yeah, Cecil Taylor was like a, he was, he's a God to me. He still is a God to me. Yeah. Um, free, and then, and then, but I also, you know, I had this kind of like, um, I was, I've been listening to hip hop since it's some of the first music I ever got into. And, um, and that was, that was also like in Ghana, like I, I almost think you could write the history of hip hop in Ghana, the introduction to like my one friend who's African American guy. He was my best friend. And, um, he used to bring these records from the States and, uh, like to this day, like I remember, uh, when I went back to Ghana, my parents moved back there to work. Uh, they were posted back again a few years ago. And a, a, a friend from high school came up and, and remarked at how at our parties, because my parents loved to dance and throw these, they would hire a DJ. And I think for one of my birthday parties, there, there were a hundred kids and we had a DJ and we had food and everything. And that was the first time they heard like, it was like some hip hop and then also like Michael Jackson or something. I don't remember it was Prince or Michael Jackson, but... So there, but I remember we brought break dancing to basically to the school, and therefore it seemed to the like nobody was break dancing. And so uh, I, what I'm saying this only because it, I understand that what happens when you bring um, a different aesthetic into a, a pre-existing culture, because I've, I've seen what happens and how mm-hmm. I love the I love the in dialectical terms, you know, it's the the synthesis that occurs. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I hate to cut this. I feel, it's not no. short, but I think we should. Can you, um, I should have told you this ahead of time, actually, so you'd have it ready, but can you read Flagelliform 19? Sure. If you just bear with me, I'm just of going course. to open a, a box and get uh, the noise I'm saying. It's going to be. Oh, that's all right. We'll edit out all the, all the crinkling unless it sounds great and atmospheric. Okay. So I am. I am, it's flagell form 19. Yeah, it's on page 62. There's a lot of like sort of self-loathing that's kind of undercurrents here and talking to oneself and stuff. Um, And I would also just um, say that the last quote, all all our wonders unavenged is a Don Demansky um, title. It's a book uh, title from one. I love Don Demansky, by the way. Great Canadian poet. Um, Okay, okay. Flagelliform 19, snake foot that does not walk. Gathered my owls, my falcons, my archers, my horses and their men, my friends and my axes, my guns, my near north spears, my arrows, my tents, and my battle chants, my dogs. At Tabon, near Kita City, at Gettysburg, at Tikrit, at Lake Erie, at the Bastille, at the Nile, at Vimy, at Ypres, at Santa Clara, at Moncada, at Las Mercedes, 
at Tambov, at Petrograd, at La Semaine Sanglante, at the Communard's wall in the Père Lachaise Cemetery, in the Rue Rampineau in Belleville. We were fewer. We were fever. At Fallujah, at Quezon, at Vicksburg, at Lake Champlain, at Milai, at the Sunni Triangle, we lay, all our wonders unavenged. Oh, that's great. This podcast was brought to you by House of Anansi Press. To learn more about our authors, visit us at houseofanansi.ca.